I'll uh, be preaching from our gospel lesson today, and I'm just going to come right out and say it. That's a tough passage. <laughs> uh, I was thinking, how can I start off with a nice joke or something to ease it in? But I think, you know, the fact is, is that this is something that is easy to choke on. I remember hearing once Robert Schuller, who is a preacher and famous uh, because of the Crystal Cathedral, a little bit cheesy, of course, as a preacher. But one thing I remember him saying well is he said, the Bible is like eating a delicate, wonderful piece of fish. You need to be awfully careful you don't choke on a bone. And I think in some ways we face passages like this, and we are unfortunately tempted to choke on the bone and forget that there is a beautiful piece of fish here that we are meant to be nourished by and encouraged by. I'd like to speak to you today about marriage and divorce, to speak to you about something that I know is very challenging for us to hear but I want to speak to you today about why Jesus is so challenging and harsh in this passage, and also why Jesus points to what the purposes of marriage are. Why do we even have this institution, which we all know can be a very, very difficult thing to live up to? To begin with, I won't ask you to do this, but the fact is, is that divorce affects every one of us. If I were to ask you to put up your hand if divorce has affected you in some deep way, every person in this room would put their hand up, I bet. The fact of the matter is, whether we are divorced ourselves, whether we are the children of divorce, or we've had friends or family, somebody's life has been affected by it. And one of the challenges that we have when we speak about marriage and divorce is that there is such a diverse array of situations that have led to a breakdown to a marriage. I can think in my own circle of family and friends and pastoral uh, ministry of how many different ways in which marriage breakdowns have happened. I think of one situation in which a person was married to a woman who has uh, bipolar disorder. And so what that meant was for many years, she would be up and run up credit card debts and then would be down and down in the dumps and things would be very difficult. One day he came home and the entire household was cleaned out. All of the furniture was gone, their children were missing, no note was left and she decided she didn't want to be married anymore. There was nothing he could do. Eventually, he tracked down where the children were, and she decided when she hit a low point, she didn't actually want the children anymore, and so he raised them. What is he to do in a situation like that? I also have people I know who a woman uh, discovered that after a couple of years, her husband had been carrying on an affair with a woman at work for two solid years. The marriage broke down in the midst of her own pain and embarrassment, feeling like he had made her look like a fool, and there was nothing she could do about it. I also remember another situation where a person I knew had a wife who uh, committed an affair and they reconciled, were forgiven, and she did it again and again and again until eventually he realized that this was a vow she could never keep and a divorce happened. I also know, of course, many situations where people simply drifted apart and put no effort whatsoever, it looked like, into keeping their marriage going. When we speak about marriage and divorce, it's pretty easy for us to think, aha, he's speaking about me and doesn't understand my situation. And you know what? You're absolutely right. When we speak about marriage and divorce, one of the most important things that anybody needs to do when they think about the situation other people are in is to realize that none of us really know what it is like. But marriage is one of the most intimate relationships we will ever have. It is intimate on a personal level, a financial level, on a sexual level, a spiritual level. And so what that means is that when we look at marriage and divorce, how deeply important it is for all of us to remember that profound thing that Jesus says, Judge not, lest you be judged. Why is it then that Jesus is so harsh, knowing that there are a wide array of different ways in which marriages break down? I'd like to suggest that one of the most important things we always do, particularly when we find a difficult situation where Jesus says things that are hard for us to digest, 
is to look at the context in which he says something. Did you notice who Jesus was speaking to when he was saying these difficult words? Listen to what Jesus says as a result of being confronted, or excuse me, look to the setup in which Jesus is speaking. Verse 2 of chapter 10. Some Pharisees came, and to test Jesus, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Do you notice that little word? Not, some Pharisees came, and because they were really seeking Jesus' guidance and help, they asked, No. Test him, they asked. Is it lawful? Do you know where also that phrase is used? They came to him to test him. Do you remember that famous episode where Jesus is in the temple? And the Pharisees gather, and to test him, they ask, is it lawful to give taxes to Caesar or not? You know why they do that? They want him to trip up, look stupid, and have everyone turn against him. It's exactly what's happening here. They set up Jesus. Jesus is being confronted by people who literally want to kill him. And part of the reason of the harshness of his answer is precisely because when you're dealing with a harsh debate, your answers are much more harsh. We look at this and we look at the ways in which Jesus speaks harshly. Jesus consistently does so when he wields a sword to pierce the arrogance and pride of those who come against him not to learn and to grow, but who come against him in order to destroy his reputation and to prevent him from doing the good that he does amongst people who are weak and hurt him. We look at this and unfortunately sometimes we use verses like this as a sword for those who are weak and hurting when in fact when Jesus runs against people who are weak and hurting and in particular, people weak and hurting because of a relationship breakdown, Jesus does not pull out his sword, but instead his shield. Some of you may remember a famous episode where Jesus speaks with a woman in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus is thirsty, and he and his disciples are walking through the area of Samaria, and he stops at a well. He sends his disciples on to get food from the village, and of course, we maybe know that famous story of the Good Samaritan and have heard many sermons of how Jews and Samaritans were separated by a deep racial hatred. They were not expected to care for one another at all, and so they're walking through a Samaritan village and expecting nothing but trouble. But this is what happens in verse 7 of chapter 4 in John. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. A little bit later, Jesus says to her, Go call your husband and come back. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. You've had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband, what you've said is true. Do you notice that Jesus knows certain things about this woman? You get a few clues. Uh, as we all know, uh, sadly, because of the Me Too movement, we know that women, even today, in which we have protections of law, women are often subject to harassment. One of the things that would usually happen in the ancient world when you're out there getting a, a drink of water at the well is that women would travel all together protection and they also would not travel in the middle of the day because of the burning heat of the Mediterranean sun from the very beginning this woman going off by herself in the middle of the day tells us there's something suspect about this person's reputation Jesus knows very well that this woman has been divorced five times and the man she's living with right now is not her husband this is a woman who in that culture would be considered damaged goods Jesus knows it very well and what is the first thing he says he says I'm not afraid to talk to you 
give me a drink, even though you're a Samaritan and a woman. And he also says that if you knew who you were talking to and you spoke to me, I would not at all withhold the gift of living water. Jesus loves this woman who has been divorced five times and does not in any way tell her that she is not worthy of speaking to him. Or when Jesus in Luke's gospel, as at the house of Simon the Pharisee, a woman of dubious reputation comes, weeps, and wipes his, hair, his feet with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee says, if he was a prophet, he would know that this is not the kind of woman you would want to have around you. And Jesus says, do you know, Simon, that when I came in, you did not greet me and wash my feet, but this woman has not stopped kissing my feet and wiping my feet with her hair. Jesus does not push away a woman broken by divorce, but instead gathers her in and loves her in the way that a shepherd goes after a lost sheep and brings it back like a lamb on his shoulders. So don't make the mistake of saying that if you've been hurt and broken because somebody has truly let you down, that Jesus somehow has stopped loving or caring for you because this passage challenges us to believe one of the most unfortunate lies that the church is allowed to continue. And that unfortunate lie is that if God really knew us, he wouldn't love us. He loves us. He knows exactly what you are in your successes and in your failures, and his love for you is such that he himself was ready to pour out his own blood to die for you. Do not forget it when we talk about difficult things. So with that out of the way, to ask ourselves then, then why is it that Jesus is saying that marriage is something so important? It's interesting to me that when Jesus is cornered, oftentimes with the Pharisees, they will ask him, give me a judgment about some matter of law, but instead of doing that, Jesus always goes back to say what was the purpose for which this law was created. They bother him because he heals somebody on the Sabbath, and then, G and then Jesus says, Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. Why did God create the Sabbath? To give you rest and refreshment. So why should I not bring rest and refreshment to a person who has been broken and bowed down under the pain of physical illness for 18 years? Jesus heals this person because he appeals to the purpose for which the law was made. And that is exactly what he does here. Look at what he says in Mark's Gospel when, they, uh, when the Pharisees attack him. He says, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And so they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Interesting that when Jesus is challenged, instead of him saying, here's a legal interpretation, what does he say? He says, considered what marriage is for. Something God made. It's interesting, in the Greek here, it becomes even more clear in verse 9. Therefore, what God, and the Greek word is theos, what God has joined, and then the uh, let no one separate. In fact, the Greek word is anthropos, let no man or no human being separate. God has created the marriage between you. Let not a human break it. You should not break what God has made. And that's deeply important because we realize that God gives us something because of his desire to bless us not to curse us with something too challenging for us to bear. What is it that Jesus says then? Why is it that we are called to marry? Why is this a gift that God has given? I think it's really important again to go back to the context. You know, Jesus isn't walking through a field and discussing things at random. Jesus in this passage is continuing a long line of very difficult things that he says. If you were listening last week, you will have heard just before this passage, what does Jesus say? Verse 42 of Mark chapter 9. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Not an easy thing to hear. 
Or he says, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. Jesus is speaking about discipleship. And what does he do after this? In verse 17 of chapter 10, one of the most challenging passages of Scripture, a man comes and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And later on, what does he say? Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Now go and sell what you own, give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Jesus is going again and again and again, saying, what is it that we're called to do? We are called to be people who are disciples and follow Jesus, even though it's difficult. And in the middle of all this discipling, he talks about marriage. What is Jesus saying? Marriage is not primarily something about us falling in love and living happily ever after with a soulmate. Jesus says marriage is in fact a way that God uses to make us grow in character and to help us to become more like Christ. It's interesting as we look through the scriptures, whenever we hear marriage spoken about, we find this theme again and again. In Ephesians, which we looked at a few weeks ago, this is what he says in chapter 5. St. Paul is writing and says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. It's interesting to say that what a husband's duty towards his wife is meant to be, to love her in the same way that Christ does. And why? In order to make her holy and without blemish. In other words, he says, not because of my personal fulfillment, he says that what my calling to be as a husband to my wife is the kind of person who makes my wife grow and become more and more like Christ. You need to understand that when Jesus speaks about marriage, he doesn't say this is simply something for personal fulfillment. He says it is something that helps us become more like Jesus Christ. It is a way of taking up your cross and following Jesus. I spoke with a few uh, colleagues uh, early in my career when we were taking something we used to call potty training. And what that was is post-ordination training, P-O-T. And they were talking about a lecture that they had heard uh, during, uh, during their seminary days. An Orthodox priest came and spoke to them about marriage. And his first words were in this lecture, he said, marriage is martyrdom. And they all said, yeah, preach it, brother. <laughs> but what did he mean by that? He meant what Jesus says. If anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Which means to say, are you willing to die to yourself and your own wants in order to help another person grow? It's interesting that when I do weddings, uh, oftentimes, I would say at least 50%, when I ask them what do they want to have read at the wedding, they will pick 1 Corinthians 13. We've probably all heard that uh, passage, and it's right to pick it because it's absolutely beautiful. But I often ask myself, do you really know what you're promising here? He says, love is patient, love is kind, love's not envious or boastful uh, or arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable, resentful, doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. My goodness gracious, this is what you're promising when you say I will love you for the rest of your life. Does anybody feel able to live up to that? You know who Paul is describing when he describes what love is? He's describing who Jesus is. That is the kind of love Jesus has for us. And that is what marriage meant to be not meant to be an excuse for us to beat ourselves up because we haven't done all of these things that we wish we could do. Instead, what it is meant to be is to help each of us, ideally, to grow to become more and more like Jesus. The last part I'd like to make is to say about marriage is to say not only is it meant for each of us to become holy, but it's also meant to be a public witness. You know the way that oftentimes, you're laughing, I'll talk to you about that later, 
Maybe there's a pastoral issue. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You look through the Old Testament, how often God uses the image of marriage to talk about his relationship to Israel. He talks about how often his people worshiping idols are not just worshiping idols, they're committing adultery. How interesting it is that he uses this language. How often Jesus, when he talks about himself, says, I am the groom and the church is the bride. Or when we look to the book of Revelation, the way that it ends, we find that a, uh, Jerusalem descends to earth like a bride adorned for her husband. What is that saying? Saying that marriage, in a way, is meant to be a picture of what God's relationship is like. And what does God do repeatedly again and again with Israel? When Israel runs away, God always brings her back. And Jesus is the same way. When he speaks about himself as the shepherd who looks after the lost sheep, what does he say? My love for you is so deep that I will go to any length in order to bring you back. When people look at my marriage to Tabia, my hope is, even though it's flawed, that there will be some glimpse in which they can look at that relationship and say, oh, that's what God is like. Tobia puts up with this jerk for so long, maybe when I'm having a difficult time, God will not abandon me. It's interesting that in both Matthew and Mark, when Jesus speaks about this, what does he do? He immediately speaks about children afterwards. Do my children look at me and say, you know what, when I wander far away, when I've not been what I'm supposed to be, God will not abandon me. And Why do I know that? I know that stability is possible because I see that my mother loving my father, even though he is difficult, and my father loving my mother, even when she is difficult. Here's the challenge for us. Can we look at this and say, I will look at this without fear because I know Jesus loves me, even if I still carry the wounds of a marriage that didn't work, even if I still carry guilt, either false guilt or true guilt, about the ways that I may not have lived up to what I was called to do. Will I still look at Jesus and know he loves me and be so confident of that that I am willing to stand up and to live a life in marriage or to support the marriage of the people I see around me? To take Jesus' words seriously and say, whatever I can do, O Lord, I will use your grace so that the marriage I live in or the marriage I see will be supported and people can look at it and know that you are a loving God who does not abandon his people. Let's not abandon marriage. It's deeply important and it is a backbone of Christian moral theology and thought. But most of all, what it is meant to be is to help all of us grow in character and love, meant to show us the goodness of Christ and the love he has even for those who are deeply flawed.